Well, you are a faithful heavenly father, and it's with grateful hearts that we gather here in the few, first few hours of our new week. We acknowledge your oversight of our lives. We acknowledge your faithful love. We thank you for the great gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that transforms lives. And we commit ourselves now to the hearing of the word of God that we might be able to well represent our Lord Jesus Christ in this world and be faithful, shining brightly in this dark world is your church. We commit this time to you, Father, and ask for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I am so grateful for... um, a number of our folks who were able to fill a bus, one of our big buses went down to the March for Life. I think we have a few pictures. We had a banner. We joined tens of thousands of people, if not hundreds of thousands of people there. And I am so thankful for this gathering there. Very grateful. Wanted to give a public shout out to our president for um, having the uh, political courage Um, not caring at all, it seems, for what people think of him and being the first sitting president of the United States to come to this march and to speak in person and to encourage uh, them to keep going with their cause and committing himself to doing everything he can to change the laws of our land to protect the lives of the unborn. This is uh, a Sunday where we have... um, a sermon, a message time dedicated to uh, really what is a very um, undesirable topic. It is a difficult topic. I want you to know that I approach it with utmost care. And I've asked the Lord throughout my preparation to help me to communicate with accuracy, uh, with grace, And yet, I think it is so important, especially important for our younger generations gathered here, that we address this topic. I mean, it's it's mind-boggling, isn't it? Imagine, imagine um, this this room, and these nine in their black robes have gathered, and uh, they are considering whether or not it should be legal in the United States for a mother to murder her unborn child. Now, you would think that the brightest minds, the the most astute and highest educated people in our land, vetted by our, our legislators, appointed to lifelong position because of their discernment and their wisdom and their record of good adjudication, And they sit around the table and they put their fingers on each side of their chin. And they probably take their glasses off and hold it because it makes you feel smart. And then they shake their head and their cheeks flap around because that makes them feel mature. And they say, yes, yes, this is a good thing. It must be in the well-being of the nation for mothers to be able to murder their unborn children. Yes. And the majority ruled in 1973, shame on them, disgraced our nation, defended by many since then. And here we are since 1973, and we live in a nation where it is 
protected, it is legalized, it is promoted for a mother to be able to murder her unborn child. Mind-boggling, isn't it? I always feel like I need to take just a minute and I need to lay a groundwork for why I want to preach this message. I recognize my audience. I recognize that it is unlikely that you could come up with five people between all three services who probably would support, uh, even in secret, the right to an abortion. I might be wrong. I hope not. And so I recognize that I'm preaching to an audience that is conservative. It is biblical. You want to think biblically. I like to think that that's not the only reason that I can speak with courage on this subject because I'm with a sympathetic audience. But I I feel that it's very important for us to at least once a year, we touch on it other times, but at least once a year for us to be addressing this subject for, for one thing, if the church doesn't speak out against it, who will? And absolutely the church should speak out against this. And, and so this is, in a sense, my way of going on record and on the internet. Anybody who wants to don't, can click on our website and they can hear our position. And I like to think that as the senior pastor here that I represent the congregation in speaking on this subject in such a manner. And so for one reason, we're putting it on the record This is what we believe. This is what the world needs to know. Secondly, I think it is important for us to speak up because of the literal statistical and literal slaughter of the innocent. Now, I waited until I needed to come down the hallway and would otherwise be distracted, so it was 731 on my computer clock when I clicked on to the abortion clock website. You can Google, just Google abortion clock. And there is a continuous nonstop record-keeping website where statistically they are showing you how many babies have been aborted since 1973 and the legalization of the Roe v. Wade decision by our Supreme Court. At 7.31 this morning... Where the Eastern time zone in the United States, this is the United States, there were statistically 740.7 abortions already since 12 a.m. this morning. And we're the Eastern time zone. 740, really 741. In the United States this year, according to the Abortion Clock website, statistically there were, and I assume this is representative of a literal number as well, 59,804 abortions as of 731 this morning, January 26th, 2020. That's for this year. We're only a month in. Since Roe v. Wade in 1973, I'm speaking now of the United States only. They also clock at the abortion clock website, international statistics, and they are mind-boggling. In some other countries, abortion is even more rampant than here. But since 1973 and the Roe v. Wade decision, uh, there have been 61,688 
1,389 abortions. Let me say that number again. Since 1973 until 731 this morning, there were 61,688,389 abortions. That is a mind-boggling number. What is rarely talked about and it is what is overlooked, but I have been trying to make a point of it in the last few years as I have addressed this topic from the pulpit, is the remarkable slaughter of black babies in our cities. Abortion has an incredible racial element to it. Let me rephrase that. It has an incredible racist element to it. And there have been 18,506,000 516 abortions in the black community since Roe v. Wade. Here's the thing. Nearly 62 million total abortions, 61 million plus abortions since 1973. Nearly 20 million of those, one-third, one in every three abortions, statistically speaking, is in the African-American community. Since 19, who was born in 1973 in here? 74, 75. How old would you be right now if you were born in 1973? You're 46 years old. Imagine what it would mean to have 18, nearly 19 million more people. You're a minority group. Somewhere, somehow, somebody's trying to keep you a minority group, seems to me. Don't you think it's appropriate for the church to speak out against racism? And so we must have this message I'm concerned about the frog in the kettle syndrome and the creeping passivity that we deal with in our lives on this topic. Our young people, especially if you're involved in in arenas where uh, you're at a university or at a secular college, secular education, uh, you are inundated with worldview philosophy that you can become immune to, you can become callous to is a better word, and, and for the rest of the church, we can easily just snooze our way through the statistics and the realities of this, and I think that this message needs to challenge passivity in the church. I think then that you would recognize with me whether you would agree or not, or not, I don't know for sure, but you would recognize with me that this insidious problem of abortion has taken us places as a culture that no one maybe uh, 47 years ago would have thought we would be. And that is that we must speak out because of the pure, shameless savagery that is acceptable now in the highest offices of the land where they promote murder of the unborn and the postborn. I'm thinking specifically of the wonderful governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia, Um, uh, a medical doctor himself dealing with children and babies, and he promotes abortion from his high office in that incredibly important state in our land, in that incredibly important office, and he publicly promotes abortion full term to the degree that as the baby is exiting the mother's womb, they would be allowed legally to kill it if he had his way. Just kill it. And then when asked what would happen if the baby were born and the mother didn't want it or maybe there was 
some kind of a problem, medically speaking or physically with the baby, then he suggested that we would just set it on the counter, try to keep it comfortable. The doctor and the mother would have a conversation. In other words, he was promoting nothing other than infanticide, the murder of a child who's already born. Listen, that is savage. You can wear a suit and you can have the highest office in the land. You might as well put a bone in your nose and wear a loincloth and take your baby and throw it in the river over the cliff to appease the gods. That is not a position of a civilized person. It is certainly not the position of a Christian. Uh, I will stop my introductory thoughts. You have the drift and so I preach. And so we address this topic, and we go to the notes. I hope you'll find them helpful. And as I mentioned, I have young people yet again this Sunday on my mind. It's been that way this early year of 2020, where I've had such a burden for our young people to think biblically and to understand the world through the lens of the word that God has given us and understanding who Christ is. So I want you to know also, though, that this message is This is the beginning of comment. This is not a thorough or exhaustive study this morning. We have just a few minutes to deal with an an incredibly uh, voluminous topic, a topic that has lots that could be said about it, and we're dealing really with just one aspect of it in the area of abortion. Obviously, the extremes of life matter. You got the earliest from from conception through birth, uh, right after birth, infanticide is being talked about. We also have the, the element of the aging and euthanasia, there are many ways that this topic could be addressed. And so what I want to do this morning is I just want to encourage, especially our young people, but our audience at large, and then anyone that wants to know, there are at least six Christian responses that are practical to this uh, heinous problem in our country. Six Christian responses I've written to our cultural chaos of death, the culture of chaos in which we live the culture of death that is being promoted. And so we will, by nature of this subject, be topical, and so we'll bounce around our Bibles just a little bit. It might be helpful for you to follow along, but I trust it will strengthen your resolve to be pro-life, strengthen your resolve to think like Christ on these matters, strengthen your resolve to see people the way God sees people. First of all, I want you to understand that we must build our understanding on this, on the foundation of this reality. There is a foundational reality with which we approach this topic, and it is this. We humans are not animals. We are not animals. We go back to the beginning. We go to Genesis where so much of our theology finds its foundation, and here, uh, true to form, We have in the creation account an understanding of what makes life sacred. More than that, not just does life have a sacredness to it, but human life has a sacredness to it. Let's read what was recorded by presumably, presumably Moses as he was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit recording for us the creation account beginning with verse 26 in Genesis chapter 1. That's pretty easy to find in your Bible this morning. Please turn with me. Then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. There's a veiled reference to the 
plurality of the singularity of God. Sounds contradictory, doesn't it? That we have a triunity. That let us make man, humankind, in our image. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, after our likeness. Notice, if you take time to review Genesis 1 and then the recap of chapter 2, it never says that plant life or animal life was created in this way. And so it says, and let them then, humankind, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so therefore, there is a a distinguishing of kinds of life. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him. And male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That means conquer it and have dominion over it. That means rule over it. and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We'll just stop there. So what makes this topic important, what makes human life distinct, understand this in a Christian worldview, in a biblical understanding of what we're dealing with here, There is one foundational concept that you must understand. Human life is sacred because we are not animals. We were created in the image of God. And this foundational concept, young people who are at university or college, and you're in your sophomore year biology class, your professor cannot get their head wrapped around this. For one thing, they don't believe in creation at all. They don't believe in the word of God. And they therefore do not believe that mankind was created in the image of God. And so they don't understand what you're saying. You you might as well speak Chinese to them or something if they don't understand Chinese. And so we have this foundational concept that we must establish all other arguments upon. Psalm chapter 8, you don't have to turn there. The psalmist in marvel and wonder says, so what is man? What is man that you are mindful of him? What is it about humans, God, that you have a plan for us that is different than all others? What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit them? And so the psalmist, he's talking and addressing distinctly the uniqueness of human life versus all other life. And there is something special and sacred about life, isn't there? You can have a favorite house plant and the life leads it. It has plant life. That's a mystery. It's a mystery. What makes that thing alive? It's a different kind of life than human life. And then one morning you recognize the leaves are turning and they're dropping and you say to yourself, oh, that makes me so sad. I'm going to lose my good plant. And so you do all kinds of things with miracle grow, and it still dies. Or I was thinking, <laughs> I was thinking about being at Christie Lake Bible Camp when I was 11 years old, and they let us take the BB guns right in the middle of the afternoon of camp and walk around and shoot the BB guns. <laughs> Times have changed, folks. <laughs> Nobody lost an eye, but we sure killed some chipmunks. What is it about 11, 12-year-old boys with BB guns that, that they would 
shoot a, a really cute little chipmunk on a log and then walk over and fill it with more BBs and laugh. And isn't it interesting that a gray-haired old preacher at age 59 can still remember something must have struck my conscience at age 11 holding a BB gun at an already dead chipmunk and shooting it again and laughing with my buddies. And, then, and I still remember that. Why? Because there's something about life, isn't there? There is something about life. And there's something wrong about death. Secondly, you need to understand, and I want to encourage you to think with a logical simplicity. Think with a logical simplicity. What I mean on this point is that it only makes sense that life begins with conception. So do not be caught up in, the, in, in edu- edumacation and high-level arguments that are designed to confuse. Stick with simple logic. I'm not saying that we don't need Christian PhDs and we don't need people who read books with small print. What I'm talking about is at the same level, for example, as the creation argument. Okay? You can fog up the room and you can talk through your head, and you can have lots of letters at the end of your name, but let's just keep it simple. Nothing plus time cannot, meet, cannot equal everything. I got no problem with that formula. In fact, until you deal with that formula, let's not continue the conversation. Something cannot come from nothing. That's a pretty basic, simple argument, isn't it? And that's what I mean, even in the area of the life argument. Do not allow your mind to become twisted up with the arguments of high-thinking, convoluted professors. It's not a hunk of tissue. It's not an appendage. If an unborn horse is an unborn horse, and an unborn, a prenatal dog is a prenatal dog, then an unborn human is a unborn human. It has personhood. In fact, let's remind ourselves of this by turning to the screens. There's a three and a half minute video, and let's remind ourselves that life begins at conception. It's a simple argument for the sacredness of an unborn baby.
so you see there is a simple logic, isn't there? And um, I, I want you to not be embarrassed to believe the obvious. The Bible supports this, by the way. Uh, We're on point number two. We are on two of six arguments or Christian understandings of thinking in a Christian way in a world of chaos and death. First of all, we have a foundational reality that we are not animals and we are distinctly separate in a life form because of being created in the image of God. Secondly, we're just pointing out that this is not a massive tissue. This is not something that can just be flushed down the drain. It is a real person who began with a real uh, genetic code and its own DNA And so there is a simple logic here to follow. The Bible supports this in Exodus 21. You don't have to turn there. I'll just run through these. Some of these verses were up on the screen just a minute ago. In Exodus 21, if a man, if two men are fighting and one of them hits a woman who's pregnant and the baby is born prematurely and it dies, then the man is to be uh, taken out and killed. There's a life for a life. Secondly, Psalm 139, Paul read that before he prayed. It was on the screen a minute ago. Uh, David is speaking in terms of euphemism for his own conception in the depths of the earth and and how God has a plan for his life at at the moment of conception. Same thing with Jeremiah. When you were in the womb, I I had a plan for you, God says. That's a real person he's talking about. In Luke chapter 1 and verse 44, that's when Elizabeth, the aunt of uh, Mary, the mother of our Lord, is pregnant in her old age in a miraculous birth, a miraculous conception on her part is beyond childbearing years, and she becomes pregnant with John the Baptist. And when Mary uh, comes to see her, it says that the baby in her womb leaped, moved. What does it say? 50 times an hour or a minute, was it? F- moving all the time. You know that better than I do. And so they... The baby leaped in her womb. And then you turn the page to Luke chapter 2, and it says Mary had baby Jesus, and it says she laid the baby in a manger. Exact same Greek word. The same word to describe a baby in the womb is the same word describing a baby out of the womb. This is not rocket science. Everybody, I think, even in their own subconsciousness, knows that that's true. Thirdly, I want to encourage us that there is a biblical foundation for speaking to civil authority. We are to speak to civil authorities. As we have opportunity and as we uh, intersect and as we have opportunity to create conversation, I think that it is right and it is biblical for the church and for Christians to speak up on behalf of the unborn to speak up for those who cannot help themselves. That's exactly what Proverbs chapter 31, verses 8 and 9 say. Open your mouth for the mute. Proverbs 31, 8. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Who is more poor and who is more needy than an unborn baby? And, and the concept there is speaking out for justice. Stand up for justice for those who cannot speak for themselves. It is right to do this. And so we speak up for the helpless. We have a biblical mandate And this is the beginning of the conversation, as I said, not the end final word biblically. There's more support for this, is my point. But we are to speak for the helpless. 
Last June, Janet and I visited the Civil Rights Museum in Montgomery, Alabama. It was, um, it was an incredibly emotional, depleting, uh, an emotionally depleting visit. It's like going to the Holocaust Museum. And you see the images, you see the news footage, you see the big posters, you see the memorabilia, and you see there where these folks under Dr. King's leadership and other pastoral leadership, mostly, where they were speaking up for their right to sit on any seat in the bus, any right to drink from any water fountain they wanted to drink from, just the things that in many ways we can't even get our mind wrapped around here. And I spent a couple of hours walking quietly and looking and reading and seeing these images. And and you see these fine people dressed like I am this morning, a suit and a tie and the women in dresses and Sunday hats and gathered and marching across the bridge there or, or in standing in a streetway and, and, and then the forces of the law coming against them with unleashing dogs and beating them down with fire hose and Bull Connor turning his men loose with wooden sticks to beat people who were not armed, people who were simply saying, we're real people too. We need a voice. And what I thought was, I wonder where the pastors of Montgomery, Alabama were. I wonder if I were a pastor there, would I have had the courage to go stand between essentially helpless people because of the color of their skin and powerful people because of the color of their skin and speak up? This is a sanctity of human life issue as well, isn't it? Would I have been willing to say, hey, 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 what are you doing? I like to think I would. It's the same thing, isn't it? We have been in the kettle too long. And so there's a passivity. If they're really human beings and they're really being murdered, where's our voice? Let's find our voice. Let's ask God for wisdom to know how to express that voice. Let's quickly click off just a couple other verses that support this concept. The next one is that we have a biblical model for speaking up to civil authority for the oppressed, similar to the helpless. A helpless is somebody who can't help themselves. It fits together with the illustration I just gave of Dr. King and the marches for civil rights and equal rights of minority groups. They're oppressed. They're not just helpless, but they're oppressed. Daniel, one of our favorite Bible characters, does what? He goes, after interpreting the dream in Daniel chapter 4 of King Nebuchadnezzar, knowing he could just have all Nebuchadnezzar has to do is snap his fingers. Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, the sole, the single, unilateral, single sole authority of the world of his day, king of the world, Nebuchadnezzar was. There was nobody more powerful than him. He didn't answer to anyone. And Daniel, God's man, says to him, if you don't stop treating the oppressed with justice, God is going to wipe you off. He's going to turn you into a grease spot. Knowing that Nebuchadnezzar could have snapped his fingers and Daniel's head would roll. Daniel, or Nebuchadnezzar doesn't listen. That's when he goes, the next verse, he goes up on the rooftop. He looks across his kingdom. 
boasts about what he has accomplished, and God gives him a psychological, emotional disorder. He begins to believe himself to be an animal, and he lives on all fours out in a pasture eating grass for, what was it, seven years? His fingernails grow, his hair grew like feathers, it says. He believed himself sometimes evidently to be a bear, and then they would go out and throw him some food because he was crazy. And then he believed He believed himself to be an eagle, and he would claw. He he was out of his ever-loving mind until he came to his senses, and God humbled him. And it was all because of uh, his treatment of the oppressed. You read it there. Thirdly, you have John the Baptist. He looks at Herod the Tetrarch. Herod the Tetrarch had taken Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. He had stolen his brother's wife. He was living in sexual immorality. And John the Baptist pipes up and and tells him, God's going to judge you for that. Herod cuts his head off because he said it. You better watch it when you speak up to civil authorities. Are you willing to get shot down with a fire hose? Are you willing for your head to roll? I don't know. We don't know sometimes until we're tested, do we? But for morality, let her see. So for the helpless, for the oppressed, for sexual purity or for morality, and then for the gospel, Acts chapter 24, same thing. The apostle Paul is before Governor Felix. His wife had divorced her husband so that she could marry this guy. And Paul lectures on the gospel of Jesus Christ and righteousness, self-control, and coming judgment. So you want to sign your name on the front, on the placard that gets you 90 seconds or whatever they give you at a city council meeting, Paul, in that context with civil authorities, shares the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then he reminds them of that there is a such thing as right living and righteousness and that you better have self-control, probably a poke in the eye for him stealing his brother's wife. And thirdly, if that's not enough, there is a coming judgment, pal. Well, that's not in there, but... And so we have biblical model for speaking out for the helpless, for the oppressed, for morality, for the gospel. It's an easy segue, then number four then, isn't it? One of the ways that we can all speak is with our vote. By God's grace, we still live in a republic. It is, by by design, a republic is a bottom-up system of rule. In other words, we the people by the people and for the people are to appoint leadership who represent who we are. So if we don't vote, we are not participating in an incredibly unusual form of government. Now ours has morphed into a two-party system. And let's just imagine those two parties had a platform. And in that platform, there's planks. I don't know who came up with that terminology, but let's just say... It's the two parties, and they have platforms, and they have planks. And one party, let's call them party A, in their platform, their plank on life says, we believe unequivocally, like the majority of Americans, which I don't think they have statistics to prove that, we believe unequivocally, like the majority of Americans, that every woman should have access to quality reproductive health care services, including safe and legal abortion regardless of where she lives, how much money she makes, or how she is insured. We believe that reproductive health is core to women's, men's, and young people's health and well-being. So boys and girls, your right to an abortion has a lot to do with your 
stability and your well-being and your mental health and emotional health. What utter nonsense. Let's say the other party had a platform and they wrote down their plank on life and it says, we say the unborn child has a fundamental right to life. We support a human life amendment to the Constitution and we endorse legislation that the 14th Amendment's protections apply to unborn children. Our purpose is to have a legislative and judicial, to have legislative and judicial protection of the right against those who perform abortions. We oppose using public revenues for abortion and will not fund organizations which advocate it. We support the appointment of judges who respect the sanctity of innocent human life. The 14th Amendment, by the way, of the Constitution was adopted in 1868 to ensure that slaves could be treated like real human beings and not be on the, on the list as a one-third human or whatever else the aboriginal mindset of the day was. So so you have two parties and they each have planks in their platform on life. Can a Christian vote for party A? The answer is no. I'll tell you what the answer is. It's no. Do not call yourself a Christian and vote for party A. Any representation of that is godless. Party B, no such thing as a perfect party. No such thing as politicians who aren't corrupt, basically. But if party B will write down in writing, and both of these are from the 2016 election, word verbatim, and they will say, we stand for the sanctity of the innocent lives of unborn babies, and you don't vote, shame on you. Do not tell me that you are a born-again Christian who believes the Bible is true and that you can stand with a clear conscience before God and vote for people who will murder unborn babies. Feel free to write me a letter about that if you want. Didn't I say I wasn't going to get angry this morning? Number five, number five, let's wrap up. We must go. How about this? Young people, young people live within the framework of sexual purity in your life. So the elephant in the living room is what? What's the elephant in the living room? Okay, so you tell me. How many of you think that more abortions happen in Morgantown, West Virginia, than Polka, West Virginia? Of course, Morgantown. Why? There's a university there. Some rocket scientists along the way decided to fence in five square miles, build buildings, and put a bunch of 18 to 25-year-olds together there and think it was all going to end well. So why are there more abortions there? Because the elephant in the living room is that this statement in the plank on human life from party A, we believe that reproductive health is core to women's, men's, and young people's health and well-being, ought to be rephrased to say their sexual promiscuity. So that they can have sex with whoever they want, whenever they want, and there will be no consequence. I think that's true. I think that's true. And so young people, Romans 12, 1 and 2 say, I beg of you, Paul said, I beg of you, I beseech you therefore, brethren, the King James says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable act of service. First Thessalonians 4 says that you should not handle your body like those 
of outside of Christ who let themselves go in the lust of the flesh. Listen, listen to me closely. It's a beautiful thing for a man and woman to come together physically. It's God's plan. It's what God designed. And of course you desire that in your heart. And of course you crave that. But there is a time and a season and a person. And God has a plan. And when you don't do things according to God's plan, everything gets messed up. And the reason I bring this up is because statistically speaking, when they survey the church at large across America, which is a broad range in the evangelical world, when they survey the church, statistics on marriage, divorce, remarriage, affairs, immorality, sexual promiscuity outside of marriage and inside of marriage, and young people, teenagers and college-age young people having... Uh, sexual activity in their lives before they're married, statistically, the church is just not very far behind the rest of the world. And so we've lost our moral authority. Our lives don't look any different than anybody else's, and then we're going to speak up on these great subjects, and they just say, Bahamba, get out of my face. So young people commit to walking in purity, living in purity, to self-control. There is a such thing as righteousness, self-control, and coming judgment. Finally, and there's no conclusion to the message, the application and the conclusion are the points themselves. Pray for national humility. With this we conclude. Jonah chapter 3. Let me just tell you because we're out of time. You remember Jonah came to confront the Ninevites. The Ninevites were pagans. And so in Jonah chapter 3, he calls out to them, if you repent, and the people repent in humility, and God spares them. The hope for America is that we pray for a national humility, that our people would bow their heads and their hearts, and we would say, God, have mercy on us. Because the bloodbath that has been represented by the Roe v. Wade decision since 1973 cannot go unjudged. God, have mercy on us. Will you stand with me? And I want you to listen very closely right now. I'm not done. I'm almost done. And I want you to bow your head and I want you to stand very still and very quietly because there's, there's something I have not addressed and I want to address it very briefly and succinctly. And that is the reality that in the three services this morning, I'm confident that there are women who've had abortions, likely, and men who your girlfriend or your wife has had abortions, or maybe you even insisted that they do that, and you carry a guilt. You have a stain in your background of a sin that you know. You knew at the time it was wrong, or even if you didn't, and I know that there are many, many circumstances about this. Can I remind you, of what the blood of Christ does. When you run to the cross and I say, you shower in the blood of Christ, you let Christ forgive you. He takes the penalty of your sin. And it takes us to my, one of my favorite verses in all of the New Testament, Romans 8.1. When we've been to the cross and we've admitted our sinfulness and we've asked God to forgive us in Christ and the work of Christ on the cross on our behalf is sufficient for our sin and God accepts it as a done deal. And we by faith are forgiven, by grace through faith are forgiven. 
Paul said in Romans 8, 1, then there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Don't let Satan whisper condemning thoughts in your ears. You have struck a blow against your own conscience and you have to deal with that, but I believe you'll see that baby in heaven one day. But that's how powerful the blood of Christ is. It can cleanse us from all unrighteousness, including the murder of the unborn. If you are struggling with guilt on this, would you right now just lay that down, figuratively speaking, at the foot of the cross, spiritually speaking, and let the blood of Christ cleanse you from all sin? And will you say to yourself, I have no condemnation coming to me for this act. Christ was condemned for it already. Praise God. I will linger at the front of the auditorium here by the pulpit. And if you need to speak with me and follow up on this, please come and see me as everyone else exits. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these truths. And I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would now work in us, strengthen our young people especially, turn the hearts of our nation, that we would be humble in your sight. And please spare our nation and be merciful, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You are dismissed.